Good evening and welcome to episode nine of Slantcast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolf and I'm Slant's publisher and editor. We're grateful that you've chosen to share this time with us. Tonight, we're continuing to stretch our wings with yet another variation in our podcast format and a very exciting one at that. We're going to be discussing a modern literary classic with the author himself. We're doing so under the shadow of a recently published expose in The New Yorker, chronicling the decline and fall of the English major. A representative sample from the article might be this quote from a Harvard professor. Quote, the last time I taught the Scarlet Letter, she said, I discovered that my students were really struggling to understand the sentences as sentences, like having trouble identifying the subject and the verb. <laughs> but you don't have to believe the sky is falling on the humanities to recognize that fewer and fewer people are convinced that an education based on reading that is both extensive and careful can be the foundation of a fulfilling personal and professional life. Nor is it mere apocalypticism to hold that the quality of our writing and reading, our creativity and our capacity to exercise discernment relates closely to our capacity to read what's actually going on in the world and thus discern how best to strive for justice and peace. As an indie literary press, Slant strives to be a haven for writing that avoids every form of reductionism, every attempt to replace literature's exploration of ambiguity and mystery with high-minded didacticism, which would certainly explain why one of our heroes is Richard Rodriguez, author of Hunger of Memory, a book that is concerned with the often fraught and paradoxical relationships between literature and education and their impact on both the public and the private realms. The occasion of tonight's conversation is the recent reissue of Hunger of Memory in a 40th anniversary edition by David R. Godin, the book's original publisher. And I should add, one of those institutions that Slant has been modeled upon. Just to introduce our two guests tonight, both Richard and our interlocutor, uh, I will give you their brief bios, as they say. Richard Rodriguez is one of America's leading public intellectuals, an author and a journalist, equally adept on screen as on paper. He is the author of the autobiographical trilogy on class, ethnicity, and race, Hunger of Memory, the Education of Richard Rodriguez, 1982, Days of Obligation, An Argument with My Mexican Father, 1992, and Brown, The Last Discovery of America, 2002. His most recent book is Darling, A Spiritual Autobiography, 2013. Rodriguez worked as an essayist for nearly 20 years on the PBS NewsHour and has written documentaries for British and American television. To broaden and amplify our conversation with Richard tonight, I've asked an old friend and colleague, Dave Griffith, who has been a longtime student of Richard's writing, 
to join us. Dave Griffith is the author of A Good War is Hard to Find, The Art of Violence in America. His reviews and essays have appeared in print and online at the Paris Review, Image, the New England Review, and another Chicago magazine, among many others. He is assistant professor in the Center for University Advising at the University of Notre Dame and an affiliated faculty member in the Riley Center for Science, Technology, and Values, where he teaches courses in Catholic literature and narrative medicine. Welcome, Dave. And also, welcome to you, Richard. Thank Glad you. to have you both with us this evening. Now, I've told you this before, Richard, but I vividly recall reading Hunger of Memory not long after it came out. I cannot for the life of me recall how the book came into my hands. Perhaps I had just become aware of Godin as a publisher and trusting in its good taste, took a chance on this book with a very simple, plain cover. But the book changed my life, both because of the compelling voice Philip Lope describes in his introduction to the anniversary edition, but also due to the artful and sensitive intermingling of self-interrogation, self-incrimination, and fiercely independent thought. I was a very white young man, clutching my college degree, but my father had grown up in poor neighborhoods in New York and Miami. And he never, in fact, graduated from college. So as a bookish, introspective lad with that new found English major college degree, I felt I had found, as Lopate puts it, a kinsman. And that remains true today, nearly 40 years later. I remain profoundly grateful for your influence in my life, Richard, and for this book, among other things. So to start off and to shut myself up. Let me ask you just a question about uh, the literary form of the book, um, which is both uh, a kind of collection of essays and yet essays that cohere. This is, this is a book published you know, well, well before the, the rage for a book of essays constituting a kind of uh, whole. Um, and so I felt like maybe you were a little ahead of your time there. And it's also a book that is called an autobiography. And it, it did also appear before the kind of memoir craze uh, that began not long afterwards. So I'm curious about these, these things, this sort of a whole in parts and this autobiography versus memoir. I don't know if either of those offers you a, a kind of purchase in beginning to think about the formal qualities of the book, the literary nature of what you attempted. Well, uh, first off, uh, it's wonderful to be with you, but uh, I also apologize. This is a book that I wrote more than four decades ago. I was a young man, unpublished, uh, afraid of, of the silence. Uh, and I had, I had left the university in protest over affirmative action, um, because I did not then consider myself a minority student, precisely because the, the experience of becoming a student 
was what kept me from being a minority. Uh, my academic or intellectual life had broadened me so that I felt connected to a, a grand literary tradition. And to call me a minority in such a situation seemed to me absurd. And so I rejected that label. I rejected affirmative action, even when it came, uh, I remember Dwight Collar at Yale, when I, I, asked, I asked him quite plainly, uh, is the only reason you're hiring me or, th or thinking about hiring me is because you imagine that I'm somehow other, <laughs> that, I, that I belong to some kind of inner city barrio or something. And he didn't, Dwight didn't say yes exactly to that. Uh, but he said, you know, we, we had to look carefully at your application. And I said, you do know that my, my impulse as a graduate student was to become you. The whole idea that you would, that you would think that you were hiring someone other when you're, you're really recovering uh, your, your own student in me. Um, so I left the university in, in this righteous protest. And I began writing this book um, as individual chapters. Uh, the first two chapters were the chapters I, I wrote first, uh, and they were they appeared in American Scholar, uh, and I began to feel that they were shaping the the, the book. Um, I wasn't I wasn't confident that I was shaping the book. I was I felt that the material was leading itself into a book, and. Um, the, the, the easiest chapter for me to write was a chapter called Credo, which was about my relationship to Roman Catholic liturgy, growing up as a boy, an altar boy in Sacramento, and, and knowing the, the Latin rite uh, with such pleasure and mystery. Uh, that was the easiest chapter. The, the hardest chapter to write was the second chapter about the, about the, the kind of nasty little boy that I was when I decided that I was going to give myself to my teachers and reject my parents, um, that I was moving to a new civilization. And I, I was quite conscious of it. I was embarrassed by them. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in, in, in Women in Love, the H. Lawrence, where he comes with a boy comes upon Paul Morell, comes upon his father, who's a coal miner. Um, his father is looking at some of his books and Paul stands at the door and doesn't make any noise. But the distance between father and son in that instance, it was, was mine. I come from a father who was extremely intelligent, but had two years of grammar school education in Mexico. I came from a very ambitious mother who, who did not read. There were no books in the house. So my, my bringing books into the house, my, my, my writing my life, was already an act of rejection about their life. So finally, my, it ends up that, that when my mother sees some chapters uh, published in a magazine of the American Scholar, she, she writes to me and asks me not to write this book, that, that the family is one thing, private. Uh, los otros, the strangers outside, are something else don't tell our personal life to strangers. Well, I took that letter and I put it in the book. Um, and it was with that kind of complication that I proceeded. Um, in, in a way I could not have written this book 
without my mother having told me not to write it. Richard, if I might jump in there, um, I, I'm often teaching your work to, to undergraduates and sometimes the high school students. Some years ago, as I was a high school teacher and uh, would teach uh, late Victorians, which you know appeared in Harper's, right? Uh, as you know, and the students are always stunned at how vulnerable you are, right? That, that's the, that's a, a very occurrent word, right? To be vulnerable was one. You know, which of course is is important, right? We want to, with our people that we love the most and, and care about the most, be present and vulnerable to them, and so they will trust us. But on the page is a whole other thing. So this revelation that your that your mother wrote to you and said, "No, no, 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 don't do this, please," uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Joan Didion, including in some of her essays her psychiatric evaluations, right? Now, this is a very different thing, of course, but, um, and, and that at the time probably seemed a little gimmicky to some people. But I, I wonder, how did you get over that hump, so to speak? How did you rationalize that? How did you maintain a relationship with your mother past that? Because that's what so many, I and mean, that's a practical question, I suppose, that you might not even remember what those conversations were, but maybe you do, because I, I still, have those concerns with my own family you know my mom who passed about 12 years ago um there there are things i'm only just now writing about in terms of our own conversation so could you speak a little bit to that like how did you rationalize that decision i need to put this in the book this is important that i get it in there um how did that decision come about for you well see i wasn't fooling uh, i i wanted the book to be not only an act of rejection but, but an insistence on my new citizenship in the larger American stream. And I that was really part of my intention. This comes at, the, at a time in the, in, in, at a time in America when, when the fact of my being, as the, the supposition was that I was Mexican, loomed very large. Uh, it's one of the ironies of my book that it ends up at bookstores in Berkeley in a section called Latino or Latinx or whatever it is, um, that's exactly what I don't, what I, what, what I was intent not to write. I wanted to write an American book. And so it, it, I told my mother once that um, she would never meet the author of Hunger of Memory, that she should, that that's a voice she didn't have to hear, that's a person she didn't have to meet, that it was a different person, that I was a public person there and addressing myself to a different audience. She never was reconciled to that uh, because she didn't understand the, 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 the strategies of writing and the way one could, you know, one can go on a stage and assume a voice quite different from the voice that your family recognizes. I never have trusted the ability of family to, to, to tell you who you are. Um, I remember uh, when I was teaching at Berkeley, um, there was a, a pair of students who came to my freshman English class. It was at eight o'clock in the morning. And um, these two students sat together. They were very big boys, uh, fullbacks. I don't know what position they played, but they would sit together. 
there was one of the two men who was really smart, but he, he was also mean. And whenever I would ask a question of the students, he would smile and he would whisper to his friend. His friend never said anything um, and was, was really, um, he, look, he looked like the 200 pound cherub. Um, and um, I couldn't get him to talk. Um, one day I, um, and it became a contest between the bad student and me as to whether we're gonna get the, the cherub to talk. And uh, one day I asked the class, this is at 8.30 in the morning, these fo freshman football players who were gonna get beaten by UCLA. I asked the class, um, um, how do you write about emotions that are, that are beyond words? For example, fear that normally when we are afraid, we don't say, I'm afraid. We go, we, we're beyond language. Well, they didn't say anything. And uh, finally, the, the, the 200-pound cherub raised his hand. It was the moment that every teacher hopes for, where the silent student says something. And um, he raised his hand and he started talking about the witch and the Wizard of Oz and about how when he was a boy, he saw that movie and was terrified of the witch and the Wizard of I don't think he had a conclusion to, to the paragraph, but it was brilliant because I, I had penetrated his silence. The trouble was that his friend was watching and his friend knew that I had won. And his friend looked at his at the, the, the cherub, the 200 pound cherub, and the moment in which their, their eyes met, the cherub stopped speaking. And I never got, I never got him back. He, he, he went away. Uh, I'm quite aware of the way so, friends silence each other. And whenever I was teaching, especially freshmen or orientation for new students, I always warn students about coming to the orientation with someone they knew in high school, because that person is not gonna let you move farther than what they already assume you are. Uh, so you have to go down, move yourself uh, to another part of the auditorium. Otherwise they're gonna control you. Um, I still feel that. I still feel the necessity of being among strangers uh, and the freedom of that. Uh, the trouble is that, you know, coming I mean, as I did from a family, that was without resources of money or the glamour of mobility. Um, I didn't know whether I could sound a voice that strangers could understand. And so it was always, there was always a tentative, will anybody understand what I'm saying, feeling to, to what I'm engaged in. Um, one, one day I was in a, in, a, in a hotel in Boston and, um, I turn, the first thing I do when I go to a hotel room is I turn the TV on just to warm up the room. And it was a football game. I won't tell you what team it was because I'll give it the story away. But I suddenly saw the bad student from, from that class. He was, he, he, was a, he was a college, he was a coach of a college team. 
And I, I looked at him. He was advising his one of the players in a huddle. And I thought, you bastard, you, 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 you silenced your, 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 your best friend, who's probably in Arizona someday right now, riding on a freeway. And his wife is complaining because, you know, you go away and I can't reach you. Um, the only nice thing I can tell you about that kid is that uh, his team lost. Um, and <laughs> there is a God. Be careful of your friends. They will not let you write a book. They will not let you sound avoid it. One of my best friends in, at, at, in college was a wonderful poet. Uh, her name was Nell Altizer. She, she's Tom Altizer, the theologian's sister. She's a very good poet and she was a very good friend, but she would refer to my books as chicanery. It became a play on the word Chicano. And, um, and she wasn't going to let me have that voice. Um, so I had to go, I had to find you and your students at Notre Dame. That's what you, you breathe life into me, the reader. I read what Greg was referring to, the article on the New Yorker about the end of freshman, of, of college English classes. Um, but I, I thought it wasn't sufficient to, to what we are facing. We're really facing the end of, of mass readers, um, of, of people who know the skill of reading. Because in, in reading my books, people give me my life. And that's what, that's, that was the return uh, exchange, that it was difficult to write this book, to be this naked and this self-flagellating and this disobedient a son. But if the book had not found an audience, that's how I came to be. It, they breathed life into me, your students. Um, that's no small thing. And it, I was very lucky, very lucky. I remember one night I, I was on the Merv Griffin show with Orson Welles. And um, I was talking to Merv Griffin, who didn't know who I was, but I was pushing hunger of memory. And Orson had already come on the show and he was at the other end of the sofa. And suddenly he says, I'm very glad you wrote this book. <laughs> and I didn't, I don't know what he, Orson had some relationship to Mexico. Maybe he thought it was a Mexican book, I don't know. Um, after the show was over, my publicist said, had the, the people on the Merv Griffin show gave us back the copy of our book. She said, give it to Orson, give it to Orson. Orson Welles was going rather like a scene in that movie where he plays the Mexican Tijuana. Um, he was going into the parking lot. Well, when we had parked two hours before that, there was nobody in the parking lot. And now there was a there was huge crowd. It was like uh, um, Nathaniel West. There were barriers put up on the side of, of, the, of the crowd to keep the crowd under control because there was the cast of Falcon Crest, which was a TV, what was it, soap opera that was appearing with Joan, I don't know, Joan Collins, I think was in it. These strange memories that still are part of my life. And so I was, I was trying to reach Orson Welles, who was moving back and forth. 
with a copy of this book. And all of a sudden this man starts waving at me from behind the, the barrier. And I said, you want Orson? You want Orson? He said, no, I want you. And I walk over to him and he hands me a piece of paper and a pen. And it's the first time somebody's asked me for an autograph. And I think to myself, there's Orson Welles. Why aren't you asking him for the autograph? He's one of the greatest filmmakers in, in American uh, uh, culture. By the time I caught up with Orson Welles uh, in Hollywood, walking to his small uh, Mercedes, I realized that that's the way, that's the way Orson Welles' life is coming to an end, doing magic tricks on the River Griffin show and having an audience waiting for Joan Collins and not paying you any any mind. So I, I you know, I, there was a time when I was on television and I used to get, I'm talking too much. You have to ask me a question. Uh, but when I was on television, people would stop me all the time and, um, and ask autographs or say, say, say things. Now the mystery, since I haven't been on television for a number of years, is that people will come up to me and will tell me something that I wrote or that they remember it that I wrote or that they imagined that I wrote that they've been carrying around in their heads, right? Like Mrs. Dalloway walking up Bond Street, uh, having seen the open copy of Shakespeare in the bookstore uh, as, as she turns. Uh, people carry each other's books with them. And she carries this line from a Shakespeare play as she walks up Bond Street. Well, the other day up on Scott Street, a woman came up to me and said, you wrote something years ago and I've never forgotten it. And then she recited what I wrote. But in fact, I had never written that. Uh, it sounded really wonderful, but I never wrote that. And so I was, you know, my mother told me to be polite and I was polite. I said, thank you, you know, for remembering and for carrying the sentence around with you. But then another day, a few days later, a young woman comes up to me and said, you give a lecture to my students at this girl's school in Palo Alto. And she told me what I said, and it was precise, and it was accurate. And I realized that she's been carrying me around all these years. That's that's the life she gives me. Richard, you, yeah, I mean, in, in that uh, first chapter, Aria, which is, of course, a tour de force and in, in, in every possible definition of that term, um, you, you, you begin with this distinction between uh, being a public person, being a private person. Um, and that that fundamental tension between public life and private life just feels to me really fundamental to the book in, in all kinds of ways. It's something you return to uh, later in the book. For example, later in the book, you, you talk about the temptation of middle-class people to relieve the anonymity of public life by trying to make it intimate. And so I've been thinking a lot about this in relationship to our, our kind of neuralgic quest these days to assert identity and to claim identity and to claim that others are not accepting our identity or understanding it. And you must have followed these kinds of things for a long time. Um, do you feel that this distinction between public and private 
has been erased, has been broken down in a way that it shouldn't, or I, I, I just feel that it's such a rich, suggestive uh, distinction that I wonder if you've thought at all about these things. Well, I, I, th I think a lot about them. Uh, I do think that the distinction in America right now, in the popular culture, the po in our popular life, the distinction is getting more and more dim. Um, and uh, there's almost nothing people are not willing to say in public uh, because the notion of a private language already is, is foreign to them. When I go to Mexico and I try to tell Mexicans uh, at academic meetings that I'm not talking about Spanish, I'm talking about uh, the private language one learns as a child when I talked about the Spanish that I'd learned. And that cannot be translated. There's no way for me to tell you what my grandmother said because she said it only to me. It wasn't any private communication in the sense that she was saying something bad. But I knew when, when my friend Tom Keating said, what did she say to you? What did she say? I, I knew that there was no translation, that it was so specifically said to me. Um, and now I think that there, we, we really live in a time in which I don't know, young people are just not being taught that they have the capacity to speak and, and to listen to language that is private. I was, I, I, I have a friend, a woman that you might know, I won't tell, tell you her name. Um, she was telling me about a Vietnamese student that she met recently. She's a high school student. And his complaint about his high school was that no one teaches you how to, how to think about your relationship to other people in the classroom. And I said, well, that's the humanities. That's what we used to call the humanities. The New Yorker calls it the liberal arts, but it wasn't liberal arts. It was that I was taught by D.H. Lawrence, by, uh, by William Soroyan, by Joan Didion, who lives in Sacramento, uh, to how to talk about yourself in a, in a public way that was different from the way your friends would, would know you and so forth. Um, the trouble with, with the education we're giving young people is that we do not know how to, because we don't teach them Jane, uh, and the Bronte sisters, we don't teach them about the, the dynamics of, of sexual desire, of love that, that is violent, unfulfilled. That a lot of students are using their own society as students as the basis of their, of their, of their semi-public life so that they become, uh, they gather in the cafeteria by race or by language or by ethnicity or by sexual inclination. There's no, there's no student body anymore. There's, oh, that table over there is where the gay students sit or that table over there is where um, the Vietnamese students sit and so forth. That failure, that collapse, of, 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 a, of a private society that allows you to join a public society is the most serious failure of our education. Richard, if I could jump, jump in there. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about, you know, in teaching your work and teaching Joan Didion's work and, and teaching work by so many different, you know, writers from across you know, the, the, the years um, about this uh, issue of, 
atomization, right? How do we, on, in what section of the Barnes and Noble would this person's work, you know, appear? It, because that's in many ways how my students have been taught, right? To categorize the things that they, that they take in so that when it's retrieved, to use that sort of Paolo Freire, you know, banking method idea, right? That you're gonna retrieve the information banked within the, within the student, that, that they know where it is. They know on what shelf that, that lives, right? And I'm wondering, uh, you know, for you, what's the antidote, right? I mean, what is the antidote to that? I mean, because for what, what you described earlier about this uh, important, decision that you made, but it was resolute, it sounds like, to write your mother's letter into your book, despite the fact that she said don't, right? For, for reasons that, I mean, that sort of blew my mind, I have to say a minute ago. Um, how, how do you, what is the antidote? You know, because if you read the New Yorker, or you read the New York Times, or you read, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't matter what news source you're gonna read when it comes to this issue. Um, everyone's going to say the same thing, which is that um, we're all, we've all been shunted off into these groups and, and this is a good thing for us, right? So what is the antidote? I mean, I used to think that literature was the thing. You know, I still believe that for myself, but it's a hard sell to people beyond myself, I feel like. Well, the antidote is, 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 is constant and, and, and playful, but also quarrelsome. I remember I was invited to come back to my high school in Sacramento, which was a Christian brother school. The Christian brothers don't teach there anymore, but it was a very good high school for me because I had a number of really good teachers. And the, the, the president or the principal would invited me to talk to a, a, the gay students. Well, there, there would be gay students at my high school already was my boy because it was such a thing was not discussed. I mean, you would you know, a boy might be laughed at for being effeminate or not being athletic, but no one talked about being gay in, in, in that school. Well, I, I refused. I said, I didn't want to talk to a room of, of gay students. I just, it didn't interest me to talk to myself. That I said, if you could give me a, a group of, of, of homophobes, <laughs> that would interest me. <laughs> could you find them? Uh, and can you, if you if you if I walk into a room uh, and that's been set up for me and everyone in in there is Hispanic, I climb up. I just can't do I can't do it. Um, uh, I'm looking. There might be some Chinese boy in the back the back row. I will I will speak to him. My 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 eyes go to him. All of those. I'm always looking for weight. The quarrel with the presumption that my audience is one thing, one person, one type uh, has had this. Otherwise you end up with students who say, you know, I didn't experience anything like that at all. And I grew up Spanish speaking and I speak beautiful Spanish and so forth. What's your problem? I was at Stanford the other day and, and the students were really nasty. It was, oh, everybody was Hispanic. And uh, I said, you know, when I was a student here, my problem is that I used to live in a dormitory called Sarah House. And Unipro Sarah now is a, a problem for Stanford University. I don't know what they call the dormitory now. It's a co-ed dormitory. It's not Sarah House. 
And right outside the window, right over here, uh, there was something called Sarah Street. And I don't know what it's called now, but I know it's not called Sarah Street. And I want to protest to you. And you're talking to me about Father Sarah and the Indians and what this, the Franciscans did or did not do with the Indians. I'm telling you that your own, your own school has taken away my culture. That, that the culture that I grew up with, the Spanish Catholic culture, that I assumed is part of literally the, the street I lived on at Stanford was, is gone. It's just erased. It's, it's politically correct now to just do away with it. And I want to protest that to you. And I, I want to encourage you to, to wonder, um, you know, in all of the sensitivity you have about the Indians, whether or not uh, Leland Stanford, whose university you attend, was so good to the Indians. And what, and, and what ways you, you benefit from, from the, the cruelties of history. You are the beneficiaries of tragedy. And you better come to terms with that because that's the, that's the nation, that's the, the, the experience of education. Am I getting to what you're asking? Yeah, I, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that this idea that one would walk into an educational environment of any sort and it's set up to be uh, univocal is anathema to what, the way that I was taught, right? Like the, the novel, for example, is multivocal, right? The, the sort of like Bakhtin like sort of idea that like it's this polyphony of voices and, 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 it's, and that's what's so amazing about it. And, I, and I, that's what I, I, I can say, honestly, that I was drawn many years ago to your work because I, 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 I didn't know uh, anyone like you, right? When I was a young person. Uh, and so that's precisely why I was drawn to it. it. It was another voice that I could bring in to the, to the you know, chorus of, of, of influences and voices that I feel like I, I needed, right? That I, but that I didn't know that I needed, <laughs> which is the other beautiful thing. So yeah, thank I, you. I don't think I knew anyone like me either growing up. And <laughs> fair, fair, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> if I had met me, I don't think I would have liked me very much. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't think so. I, I was, you know, I could, I was playful. I could make the class a, a boys class, a boys school. I could make them laugh at you, if if you cross me, but I didn't like you, and I didn't, I didn't expect you to like me either. Um, because my allegiance was to my teachers. That was really my relationship. It wasn't with other students. It, I had an extraordinary relationship with teachers, some of whom are, are still alive. Um, and um, my best teacher, whose name I will not utter today, uh, talk about breathing life into me. He breathed life into me. He came during Christmas break and, and sought me out. I was at the library. My father said, oh, he's over there in the park. And so we sat in the car, his car, and talked about uh, Tennessee Williams. And I, I realized now he was talking to me about being gay, not him. Years later, I heard that he was in, he was in trouble. He was uh, seriously alcoholic. I mean, seriously, the students at, at a Catholic college would find him sprawled on the, on the pavement outside of a dormitory in the morning. This is the man who saved me as a child, as a young man, who gave me books, who, who, who took me out to a restaurant to show me 
how you go to a restaurant, what you, I, I ordered a Roy Rogers. I didn't, I never knew that there was such a thing called Roy Rogers. Um, and then when he needed something, even a note from me, I turned my back. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't save him. Um, not that I could have, but um, there was, I used, if you were my teacher, I would use you, but you mustn't expect that I would be nice to you. Uh, and I wasn't nice to many of the teachers who were so good to me, but they were my personal relationship. I mean, um, they're the people, they were my education. It wasn't the club that I joined. It was a relationship to, the, to those, they were men. And then the Sisters of Mercy in grammar school who remained very close to me um, many, many years later, um, I would do anything for them um, except be nice. Um, you know, they, because they were too important for me. And so I began to treat them like they, I would treat my parents. I was both good, sometimes very good, and often very bad. Now, Richard, you, you say, you know, of this book that you really wanted to tell an American story. And, you know, that raises, you know, the kind of troubled idea of assimilation, which can can of course take on many different aspects depending on you know what how you're defining it and how you're looking at it. Um, clearly, if 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 assimilation is looked at in too rigid a, a way, uh, it it is an evil thing. Um, and yet, part of me feels that maybe a more ample idea of assimilation, a, a more uh, hospitable. Uh, fluid I ideal of assimilation is really what this act of of reading and writing you know calls us to in some way that we have to assimilate to one another <laughs> through these mysterious means of sharing our interiority with each other through this exteriority I mean is assimilation salvageable is it something is there an American story still to be written well, we keep looking for it, and I mean this 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 interest now in in black culture in America, black novels. Um, I I think we're we're looking for a way to broaden our sense of who 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 we are, and we use some really despicable terms like dead white men, that sort of thing. I mean, that's not helpful to me uh, because most of those dead white men created helped create me, but nonetheless, this impulse to bring black experience, black voices, black literature into, into our lives is, is, is very much alive right now. It's as though we don't feel ourselves complete. We need this, this, other, this other part of our, our national culture. I remember when I was teaching at Berkeley, I had an office in Wheeler, in Wheeler Hall, and I had a student, a very stylish young uh, African-American girl, uh, she was about, I don't know, 19. And she noticed on my desk, I hadn't put it there for her or for anybody, except it was a book that I was reading, uh, a Chibes book, uh, No Longer at Ease. And this was 19, 1970s. She looked at it, lifted it up and played with her thumb along, along the edge of the book. And she said, why are you reading this book? And 
I thought to myself, why, you know, since when am I not allowed to read a Nigerian novelist? When, when is, when did that happen? You know, I remember when I, when I was a, much younger than that, I was at the Clooney Library in, in the park, in McKinley Park in Sacramento. And I found uh, a book by um, of James Baldwin. Um, and I, I sort of knew something about him, but I reached for it. And there was no sense in which I, I could not hold it, that I could not take it with me home. Um, I think the book is called No Longer, No, 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 um, no Nobody Knows My Name, something like that. The notion that all culture is yours is really important part of, of, uh, of the educational process that you feel confident of, of, of belonging to that society. Now, when I, when I was in England uh, as a graduate student, I saw many times when what accent could do, how people could disqualify themselves by not speaking English with, with the conventional high academic uh, tones. And I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't, I wanted to frighten people with my voice. I didn't want them to laugh at my, my voice. And so I wanted to assimilate their voice into my voice. Um, I knew, I think I know that if I ever up, ended up in Bloomsbury with Virginia Woolf and Leonard, they would have laughed at my, at, at my speech, at, at the way I carry on. Um, but I wanted, I wanted that somehow to be, I wanted to get past it. I wanted to offer them something that they couldn't reject easily. Uh, and if that's assimilation, then that's what, that's what it was. I could not let them have permission to, to drum me out of the club. Do you know what I'm saying? No. Absolutely. This, this is really urgent for me, um, and, but I, I wanted to be educated. And it embarrassed me, you know, that the, the scene with the gas station and this teenage boy is talking to my father and my father can't speak to him. He speaks gibberish. And I was so embarrassed by my father's lack of command of the English language uh, that I wanted, I wanted to run away from my father. And I, I ran ahead into the night um, because the embarrassment was so acute. So yes, I, if you tell me I was, that I sound like an assimilated man, that's what I've been trying to, to do all my life. Richard, could you speak a little bit more to, I mean, you're talking about assimilation as it relates to the way that you speak or the way that you're heard. Um, there's, a, there's a moment in, hunger and memory where you're talking about uh, how upset you are, that, how condescended you feel your parents were by the, by the church. And you talk about the way that the liturgy was a place that they were really nourished and the way it was a way that they could find out about themselves. It gave them a way to think richly about themselves and about their lives and not just about themselves, but everyone, you know, all, all parishioners. Where does language, what, what sort of language is being used there, right? I'm not a theologian, but I am a writer and I'm sensitive to, I'm a post-Vatican II kid. You know, I was born in 1975. So 
you know, I, I didn't know any, any other uh, form of the mass, although I have been to Latin mass a number of times in my life. What, what is there in the liturgy in terms of language that might be a way for us to talk to one another or, or be in, uh, you know, you know, be in community with one another. I mean, we're told that we are in community with one another as members of, of the church, but is that true? I mean, where are you that, these days with that, I suppose? I mean, it's a, a really potentially dangerous question, I suppose, but well, I, I feel like you can I don't, think it's, I don't think it's dangerous. I do, I do think that the Catholic Church right now is, uh, is trying a little bit too much uh, to, to be unceremonial, to be in, in, informal, to, be, to meet its audience at a level that it, it expects its audience to be. But my parents were, were elevated by the architecture of the church we attended and by the stained glass windows. They came from Dublin, Ireland. And by the uh, Anton Dorndorf, who was our choir director, the Mozart Mass. My parents did not know German, but my parents recognized the music as being magnificent music. And the church pumped it into us that this was our music, that this is that this is <laughs> this is the way we were to worship with this highest ceremony, and I took I took the liturgy very seriously as an altar boy. Um, and if I was at your mother's funeral, I didn't fool around. I I did everything in in because part of the the the, the mystery of of that early church, early in my life, was that it was so organized. Nobody shouted out. Amen, raise be. It was all organized, and we 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 answered the priest, or we we he answered he answered me when I when I when I answered his prayers in the same way, over and over again. It was precisely the formality of it that that allowed us to be to pray together, uh, because we we suddenly we suddenly were within a, a organized. I think of all those times when I used to go and pray with my classmates from the first grade uh, and nobody snickered and we got used to it. And, but it was within the formulas of the prayers that we were reciting every day. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that allowed us to pray together and, and uh, without the embarrassment of, of stepping out and announcing ourselves in, in, in more personal ways. Uh, I, I, I miss that church um, because it was, uh, I love singing in choirs. Dees Lawrence has, a, has an essay somewhere about English Protestant hymns. And boy, oh boy, are they good when they're really good. Uh, and especially, you know, like in a mining town in the, mid, the Midlands of England, when you get poor people singing uh, together in a loud voice, that is something, that's prayer. And when you get my mother admiring uh, the windows, so I took her to, to the Vatican and at the very spot where T.S. Eliot fell down on his knees at, at the approach into, into St. Peter's, my mother looked up and said, this is beautiful. That's, you don't need a PhD to do that. That's what the brilliance of the, of the architecture was. It was. There was nothing condescending about it. And I would, I would have been so respectful at your mother's funeral. Um, I just, I would, I, I would realize that that's, 
I remember there was a young man found dead in a hotel in Sacramento and um, the circumstances of his death, I, I never, I never was quite clear of, but I think he was murdered. And it was very rare in the church that, that I attended, which is bordering on upper class Sacramento. Um, to get a, a, a grave, a, a coffin for a man who was possibly murdered, a young man. And there were three people at his funeral. And um, I, looked, the, I looked at the, the, as I was holding at the end when we were praying over the coffin, I was looking at the two women who'd come, one a young woman, I thought maybe a girlfriend, maybe a sister. And I looked at, uh, the older woman, um, and she was worn in time, and uh, nobody was crying. And I took my cue from that. Uh, and when we got to the cemetery, there weren't enough males, enough bodies to carry the, his body. It was the first time I carried death. And I remember walking across the lawn, there was dew on the grass, and there was the smell of the earth and this mound of fresh earth waiting to, to receive his body. When, I, when that was done, when I felt death that was not as heavy as I thought it was going to be, and, and I could feel his body move with my movements, um, I went back to school and the priest dropped me off at the school. And the kids were in the cafeteria having lunch. Um, and I had been, I'd been to death. I'd been to death and back. You cannot, I can't tell you how that forms you, except it did form me. And um, it was such a liturgy of such texture and complexity. And part of it was that it was so beautiful. The only, I've written somewhere, I think in the book, Darling, the only building in Sacramento that was as beautiful as Sacred Heart Church was the Alhambra Theater, um, which is a magnificent theater. And they tore it down for a Safeway. But but the Alhambra Theater, uh, the Sacred Heart Church is still there. And they do liturgical concerts on Sunday afternoon, to which all kinds of people come. Um, because it, music is Anton Dorndorf's Mozart Mass was a way of praying. And, and my parents knew it. Yeah, it's fascinating in that in that chapter credo because uh, you know you say that you're a liberal in in, in all things, but but liturgy, um, you know I think the the tendency is of our time has been well, culture is elitism, um, Mozart elite is elitism. We should democratize uh, and and make everything as you say in the book. Um, Idiomatic, I believe, is the word that you use. Uh, and yet, the, isn't the paradox of that that without a kind of standard uh, that that elevates us, we we remain uh, <laughs> we we don't rise together in a sense. We don't experience a, a community, a communal experience of the sacred when everything is just uh, you know just so damn folksy. Yeah. Uh I, I, you know, when the, when the folk mass came to the universities and I, I, I joined in uh, because that's what it, we did. And, uh, but it was never going to be the same as a, 
it was just not not that. When I was living in London, I used to go to Farm Street, the Jesuit church in Mayfair, because the 11 o'clock mass at Farm Street is Latin. And I was surprised. This is upper, this is class. But here are people, upper class English and Europeans at this mass, all of whom, when the credo is, is, is prayed, uh, know how to know, know how to pray aloud. So it was a, a post-Vatican II, we were all praying the, the credo, but we were praying it in Latin together. And that was really quite moving to me. And I realized these people have been educated within these, these systems, like, like characters in an evil and wild novel. And this was, this was part of their culture. Um, and it was part of my culture too. The trouble with, with credo, as I say to, um, in the chapter that I wrote, is that credo is I believe. Um, I knew that as somebody who spoke Spanish, um, but to translate that to we believe in God was, a, was such a violation and such an, a rejection of the notion that the priest could summon all of us in his prayer and, and say credo and encompasseth all. Instead, we had to literalize that and turn it into we believe in God. That was an offense to me it, of, of some magnitude, I must say. Um, I, I'm easily offended, I must tell you. But um, on that point, I, I thought, this is not translation. This is really something else. The inability to trust the priest, to summon in his voice, all of us. Joan Didion has been mentioned several times in this conversation. And, I grew up in Sacramento. She was about 10 years older than I was. She went to McClatchy High School across town. I, she, gave me the, she gave me the possibility of being a writer because I read an essay of hers in, in Holiday Magazine on, and mentioned Sacramento. I didn't know you could write about the life that I was living, delivering newspapers for the Sacramento Bee every afternoon. I didn't know that, that, that I was living on a literary landscape and I remember uh, her mother was uh, fairly right, right wing, a member of a John, the John Birch Society. I don't know if you know the John Birch Society, but I went to the John Birch Society meetings um, just because I, want, I wanted to. I had heard about them and they were at the Senator Hotel and I sat in the back row with this young woman who was a student at Sacramento State University. And at one point, the, the, the speaker says, look at those two in the back row taking notes. And good for them, he said. Uh, just take all the notes you want and tell people what you're hearing me say. And all the, all the people in the audience turned around to look at us. And I, I, my private fantasy right now is that one of those women was Joan Didion's mother. And that <laughs> the, 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 the already our, our, our lives were crossing that way. He was Episcopalian, and I wasn't. John Didion. Big difference. She's buried at uh, St. John the Divine. Uh, her ashes are between her mother on the one side, the John Birch Society member, and her husband, the Irish Catholic John Dunn. Uh, a very good essayist, by, by the way. Uh, and there she is, perched between <laughs> a kind of Catholic uh, Hartford, Connecticut, 
and the right wing Sacramento, California. There's so much interesting things to say about John Didion. Nobody's saying it right now. The people are paying $28,000 for her sunglasses. It's just ludicrous. It's just the whole thing is, is, is madness. Uh, so, you know, one lets it pass. Richard, could you could you speak maybe just a little bit more, just because uh, this is a an intersection of things that is delightful to me, your, your work and 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 Joan Didion's work. Um, I, I think mainly because um, for whatever reason, she did not seem to um, speak very. Um, loudly or explicitly about her faith, right? I'm sure she had, you know, I, you know, some kind of spiritual sensibility about her, but it's not, you know, explicit in her work necessarily. And maybe in her later work when she's talking about, you know, her husband passing and her daughter passing. And those those works are are beautiful in in, um, in their own ways. Um, but I, I'm wondering when you when you said a minute ago that you know, you didn't know that you, when she was writing about about where she was from, which is where you were living, that you didn't know that you could do that. What are the other things that you didn't know you could do? What are the other things that you learned only from reading other people that that you could do? Um, it's hard for me to imagine that you didn't know. <laughs> you know, but what are the things that you felt like you knew that you learned that you could do reading other people? The, the other writer, California writer, who was that important to me was William Chevron. And it, I, I, I followed William Chevron's life quite early in Fresno, William Chevron, and then San Francisco, William Chevron, and then followed him to Hollywood and the bad marriages and difficult times and so forth. And then he came back. Years later, I, I was give, at, a, at an anniversary of, of his uh, of his death in Fresno. They gave me to go on a stage. I refused to ride it. They gave me one of his bicycles that he used to ride around Fresno. And I, I didn't want to look like, like a clown coming onto a stage riding a bicycle. But as I was holding the, 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 that, that, uh, that bicycle in my arms, it was really important for me to connect to William Saroyan. I thought some of those early essays of his uh, were really magnificent. And what I envy him is that um, he doesn't end up in an Armenian section of the bookstore. There is no Armenian section of the bookstore. Um, he's, he is that show. There used to be a, a, a bookstore on Madison Avenue uh, owned by a wealthy woman, I think, I forget. Her father owned IBM or something. Anyway, they had a whole wall of the bookstore given to literature, which meant basically the books that she loved. And I was really happy to find my second book, Days of Obligation, on that, on that, in that collection. It was, it was with everyone that I loved. It was just there. And then about three weeks, three months later, the, the announcement comes that the Whitney Museum wants the property and they tore down the, the bookstore. So that whole shelf, what I call the white shelf, uh, writers who don't have a, a color or an accent, but speak within the assimilated voice of, the, of England or Australia or France, that, that, they, that they, they belong together. And that's what I wanted to join.
Thank you. Thank you. Richard, you know, one, one thing that I feel maybe almost prophetic about hunger of memory is, and particularly you sketched this out in the, in the chapter called profession was your rejection of academia, um, which is a kind of a, was a big deal. I mean, I, I know that at, at the outset of the conversation, you said, well, I protested affirmative action and its impact on, on standards and, and the ethics of it and all that. And, and, and I've obviously I, that's true. I'm, I'm sure that was very much in your mind, but I think maybe there was something deeper, uh, maybe a, a sense on your part of the danger of kind of conformism that academia tends to impress. I mean, you, you became what a journalist, a freelance writer, um, you had all the intellectual chops to be a scholar, but I think something, some instinct in you felt that you just didn't want to be, well, to quote, was it Macbeth, cabin crimped and confined in that way. So I doubt that you've had many reasons to, to regret that decision, or maybe have you? I, I initially, I felt that if I were, if I were to remain in the university, that the, the pressure of those political years was such that the students would, would really not make it easy for me. Um, and there were, there were schools that I've never been invited to, Notre Dame, one of them, uh, uh, but a school like um, Stanford, I mean, the, the faculty would see to it that I, I would not get invited to this day. Um, I had some of my worst critics or the most vocal critics at those schools. And it was easier to create, to recreate oneself within a different milieu and to be working for a magazine or for a television network or um, you ended up with much more freedom. You could say anything you wanted. Um, I used to, I remember Bill Buckley once making uh, an, inter, an, an appearance on a, on a show at, but it aired at two in the morning and he'd made a mistake, a large mistake. And he said, he thought to himself, well, nobody's gonna be watching that show at two in the morning. And then the next day, of course, everyone that he meets says, I, we saw you last night on that show. Um, I've, I've often tested that. I've often tested how far I can go with this. Um, and I'm on the news hour, which was a pretty conventional show when I, when I started working for them, they, they gave me freedom, but I kept inching and inching. And um, I was playing, but I also had a wonderful producer. Uh, and what was the point after all, if I was just gonna end up sounding like somebody from PBS, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, to just be odd and different. And I wanted to be Julia Child. When I was given an award, a TV award that they give people uh, at the at the Waldorf, um, I got up and I gave a speech and I said, I, "That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be Julius. I wanted to be really weird. I wanted to drop the turkey on the floor. I wanted to uh, have a that shrill voice of hers. Um, I wanted people to say, what is that woman doing? Who is she? Um, that's what I wanted. And um, my nose was wrong. My lips were wrong, my face was wrong, but I, you know, I don't look like a weatherman on my television stations. Um, I don't. I look like Julia Child. 
you can get far with Julia Childs because everybody thinks of Julia Childs. Well, one of the things I love about Julia Childs is she, you know, said, never apologize for anything that you cook, right? <laughs> you know, that, that seems to, to fit well with, with your, if, if I may say so, the, the, the uh, impression I get from your own, you know, attitude toward your work, right? I mean, you're, here we are celebrating something you wrote 40 years ago. Um, and you were saying, you know, that in relation to your mother, you know, mom, you will never meet that person, right? I wonder what that means for you now, right? As, as you hear it, you know, in, in a, a, a different stage of your career and thinking about new projects and what's possible, you know, you don't wanna go back, it would seem like. Uh, you're probably still that person, I would imagine, that doesn't wanna be like everybody, <laughs> everybody else. So what is that, what is, what is left for you? I mean, what, what are those other dimensions and facets to, to what's, left, what's left what's left is death uh, you know I'm at a high enough perch now that I can look over the horizon and I realize that I'm mortal and that uh, I you know whatever I had whatever else AIDS did in San Francisco in the years that I was living here there's a telephone on my desk here which used to ring a lot with the announcement of death Somebody has died. Somebody's gone to the hospital. And these are people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It was like living in war. It was the strange experience that everyone you knew was dying. All this wit was dying around you. It was turning into these emaciated bodies on a bed without any possibility of, of humor. Um, so, my parents were still going to Sears or were still going to Safeway, but that generation of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and some of my closest friends was, were all dying. So when I face death now, is all these years later, 40 years later, it's with the same sense of, of, of the, the finality of mortality, but um, it's, a, it's a project. And um, I think about, not so much my death right now. I think about it since I suffered injury and was in the hospital, I had to have my brain reconstructed. I think about what it is to survive and what that what what that what that opportunity is. One survival. A young man uh, from a university that I taught at who knew speaks he's come, was raised in a Chinese family speaks wonderful Mandarin, decided that he wanted to learn Arabic. He had it in his idea that Arabic is the, the most different language. And so he went to the Middle East and he learned Arabic. I quote him in the book called Darling. Um, and he writes to me an email and says that I have met the woman of my life. She's Palestinian and we're going to get married in Alexandria. And he said, I want you to be there. I have hundreds of thousands of frequent flyer points. I can get there easily enough. But um, having suffered this injury to my head, I don't trust flights as, as, as routinely as I used to. What an air pressurized airplane cabin would do 
for a 14 hour plane trip. So he says, I want you to be there, no excuses. And of course, I go to a neurologist over at Stanford and said, and he says to me, if I were you, I wouldn't do it. He said, you don't, you don't know Cairo. You don't know what, is, what you're going to feel like when you get off the plane. Um, and you don't know how to make your way through the city. The city, it's the city you don't know. You lived in London. If something happened to you on the flight to London, that would be different. But I have to tell you, because I have to tell myself that I didn't go to Cairo. And I didn't offer an apology. I just pretended that the, the invitation did not come. I feel myself growing cowardly in that sense. Um, and I'm sorry for it, um, but I'm not as brave as, I, as perhaps I want to be. When you no longer are a hero in your own eyes, um, that's, a, that's a serious diminishment. Well, Richard, you are, uh, as always, maybe a little too willing to uh, perform self-incrimination on <laughs> subjects like this, but I, I appreciate the honesty and the, the transparency that you bring. You know, as we wrap up here, I just want to say um, that of of all the many pithy things you said, I think my my single favorite quote is very simple three word sentence you once wrote: "Books should confuse." <laughs> and I've I've really cherished that quote because uh, you know I I I'm like anyone else. I you know grew up thinking that books ought to clarify and answer and boil down and, and provide the solutions. And um, uh, your books have always confused me in sort of the best possible way. So um, I remain enormously grateful to that. And I know that Dave and I are, are just thrilled to have had this time with you and to celebrate uh, a book you may not, you know, remember the author of that well, but who nonetheless does live with us, as you were saying earlier, some someone who's still carried by by many, including us. So um, we're grateful for the witness that you you give to so many different fundamental <laughs> principles that, that are truly moral, that are, in my opinion, heroic. So thank you. We were just grateful. Thank you, David, you, for giving me my life. It's as simple as that, and as profound as that. You give me my life. Um, no small, small, no small gift. Um, so thank you for that. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dave, uh, as well, and and to of course to Richard. And um, I'm going to wrap up now with just a few bits of housekeeping to say that uh, we'll be announcing the date of our next podcast soon. Uh, if you're interested in our recent releases, uh, three of which came out last month. Uh, each of them is uh, related to uh, one aspect that we were discussing with Richard, the realm of religion and ethics. And uh, those three titles are Cry of the Heart on the Meaning of Suffering by Lorenzo Albacete, uh, a great Puerto Rican writer, uh, Richard, who I think you should read someday. Uh, the other two are The Miracle of Hospitality by Luigi Giussani. And everything I did, I did for happiness, the life of Enzo Piccinini, a fascinating Italian surgeon who died 
about 25 years ago and whose cause is actually being put forward to the Vatican. You can learn more about these titles, including the different ways to order them by going to their respective web pages at slantbooks.org. Tonight's episode of Slantcast has been recorded and will soon be available on both our YouTube channel and, of course, wherever you find your podcasts. Remember that you can now subscribe to Slantcast through all the major outlets, including Spotify, Apple, Audible, SoundCloud, and others. Finally, remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time.